You're listening to the Living in Bosnia and Herzegovina podcast. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Living in Bosnia and Herzegovina podcast. The team behind this podcast is me, David, and my wife, Tamara. I'm originally from the UK, and Tam is from the nearest city to us, which is Banja Luka, Bosnia's second city, and situated in the north of the country. The aim of this podcast is to introduce you to this amazing country through interviews and stories that we hope you'll find interesting and exciting enough to want to come and visit. The country really is a hidden gem. Today's episode, well, it's a bit different. Today I talk to Tom Beck, who's originally from Watford in the United Kingdom, but now lives near Potsdam in Germany. Tom has recently published a book called Goodbye Britain. Now, I'm a Brit who's left and settled in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Tom interviewed me for his book, and after reading it, I wanted to find out about the stories that others who have left Britain also had to tell him. Tom has also visited Bosnia-Herzegovina, so I wanted to hear what his impressions of this misunderstood country were as well. So without further ado, let's crack on. You're listening to the Living in Bosnia and Herzegovina podcast. Today I'm sat in a sunny Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is, yeah, we should have sun all the time now, but we've got crazy weather. But not as crazy, it seems, as in Berlin, in Potsdam in Berlin. Tom Beck is in Berlin. Why snow, mate? I mean, come on, this is, well... We're at uh, the middle of March here. I know. I thought we'd got through it. So last month we had really heavy snow for two or three weeks and we could actually go skating on the lake. And the sun had started coming out a lot more. But today, weirdly, it's snowing again. So back to it. (laughs) (laughs) The reason that uh, I've got Tom on the podcast today is that some time ago, and I... must be because I'm getting old now and and I have holes in my memory. I came across somebody saying, I'm looking for people that do not live in Britain anymore, that live outside Britain. And I'd like to talk to them because I'm going to put this book together. And I thought, well, that's a jolly good thing. So, um, yeah, and I, I replied to this guy called Tom Beck. So, Tom, you're the best person to tell us who you are, what you are and how you've come to be in Berlin. Sure. So I'm initially from Watford. And for my job, I am a technical writer. So a technical writer effectively is the the person who creates the user guides or the help material for software. And um, I was working for a German company back in a place called Maidenhead. And I noticed one day I was sat around that I was actually the only British person in my team. So I was working with a South African, um, an Indian, a Pakistani, a Polish person, a Russian. And I thought, why is everybody else working outside of their home country? And I've spent my whole life pretty much in these 20 mile kind of round circle. And I thought I should do something about that. I didn't want to look back and eventually realize that I spent my whole working and life in the same area. Working for a German company made moving to Germany far easier. I looked around, I found an English um, speaking and writing job in Potsdam and applied and took it. And then after being here for a while, I realized that talking to my friends and family back home, they didn't really understand what it was like to to live outside of your own country. And it sounds really basic, right? But actually, I miss out on quite a lot of what's happening back in the UK. And people forget that they invite me to stuff. And 
I'm not there. I can't just quickly go down the road and meet them for a drink. So I kind of, I was missing being able to speak about my experiences with other people. So I thought I'd combine the two. So I'm a writer in my career. I just write technical content, but I've always wanted to kind of keep my writing ability up and talk about different subjects, not just be kind of institutionalized. And I thought, why don't I try and reach out to some other British people who understand what it's like to leave the UK? And that's where the book idea came from. I found most of the people through Facebook groups, and then I branched out through Twitter and Instagram. And I believe that's where I found you. And Bosnia was interesting to me because the year prior to, to talking to you, I'd been to Sarajevo for three days and kind of done a little bit of a tourist trail through down to Mostar and back um, and absolutely loved it. So yeah, connecting with you was fascinating because I knew the country you were talking about, which wasn't always the case. You've put this book together. It's it's taken you a considerable amount of time. And I'm going to leave that to you at the end to have some shameless self-publicity to, to tell everybody about the book. But I love the title, Goodbye Britain, Talking to the Brits Who Packed Their Bags and Left. And the graphic is so cool because... You know, there's planes and, and there's a ferry leaving. And I follow what's going on back in the UK. And I don't want to get into politics, but I'm I'm most disappointed about the last number of years. But you've got this book. There are so, so, so many stories that you've managed to put together. And I'm hoping a lot of people are going to get hold of your book. And in all these wonderful chapters, Seeking Adventures, and we have people from Argentina, from Finland, from South Korea, Colombia, Canada, um, changing sceneries, people in Spain, Turkey and Portugal, people I think that have left because of the love of their lives, Kuwait, Japan, my goodness, that's a long way away, chasing dreams, swapping schools, taking chances, fitting in an, a chapter then for people like me, settling down. Uh, and I'm, I'm lucky to say that I'm together with people from Finland, Japan, Canada, and the Netherlands. And yes, I was, yeah, I thought that the reality really struck home with dealing with disappointment and people that are, are heading home. So how difficult was it for you, both logistically and, uh, and as a writer, not only to find all these 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 stories, but to, to put them in, in, into such a way that it meet it gives such fascinating reading, especially to Brits. So finding them was relatively easy because there are lots of different online groups, lots of Facebook groups, lots of people in their Twitter profiles are happy to, to talk about it. I think the hardest part was actually explaining the concept to them. So the book is, isn't a collection of blog posts or guest articles. It's me spending at least, I'd say, about an hour talking to people recording their actual words and then transcribing all of them and then trying to work out what I think is the most interesting thread and then presenting it back in their words. So it comes across like a person speaking to you and trying to explain that to people was difficult because most of them wanted to be involved, but they wanted to curate and write their own content. But I didn't want to just bring together 80 blog posts. I didn't think that was adding any value. So I spent a lot of time, so this started exactly a year ago, so last March. I spent probably over, I think it was 5,000 minutes talking to people. From that, about 80% of the people ended up being in the book. And it was just a lot of time talking to people, listening back to my words, writing down everything I could, and then trying to work out the thread between them. 
I'm fairly happy with how it went. I'm quite a meticulous person. I like to have lists and follow through and see the process. I think the most the most upsetting part was that sometimes I lost people along the way. So I found that people were very willing to talk openly about their thoughts and their feelings and their negative experiences. But the minute they read their own words back to themselves, it became a different matter. So people were quite keen to tell me about personal issues with their relationships or times where they felt they failed. And then reading them back to themselves, many of them um, said they didn't want to be included anymore. And I guess that was quite interesting for me because I'm quite, I'm quite outspoken and willing to to talk and I don't mind being kind of held accountable to those words it sounds like lots of people aren't comfortable with it it's not something that they do all of the time so I guess that was the hardest part it wasn't the logistics as such it was convincing people of my approach this first person narrative but also just I had to hope and kind of trust that people would stand up to what they've said it turns out not everybody could so I had some really awkward difficult conversations I had to cut out a lot of my friends from the book because they weren't happy with me representing them in any negative ways. So that, that was, that's been the hardest part. And since publishing the book, I've had two or three people who've suddenly decided they don't like it and they don't want to be in it. And they've changed their names or changed their stories, which has been difficult as well. But fortunately, David, you weren't one of them. That, that made it far easier for me. The people that believed the idea, went with it, and they're still happy with it today. It's been great. I, I, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that because it was one of the things I was going to ask you. I create lots of content online. Well, I'm retired now, so it's a hobby for me. But yeah, the thing that really gets me is, you know, you, you talk to somebody on a podcast or whatever, and then they say, can, you, can I listen to it, you know, again? And they go, oh, no, 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 that, you, you have to cut that out or edit this or edit that. And I've... You know, I was a broadcaster for many years, and I what I found difficult now is that back in the day we would, you know, the red light would come on in the studio, and and you'd start talking on a radio station. You can't take your words back once you've said them. But uh, you know, it, it frustrates me a lot. And I, I was going to ask you that question um, about the frustration. But you mentioned about a thread. What was the sort of like the most constant thread that we all had? in our stories when we told them to you? I would say that, I'd say 90% of the people I spoke to had no regrets about doing it. So obviously we all kind of go through the same, okay, we think we might leave, the leaving process, the arriving at the new place, the getting, coming to terms of it. But I'd say 90 to 95% of people just had no regrets about doing it. Even the, the unfortunate people who had to deal with their disappointments. And you know, in the book, we talk to people who, who feel like they failed. We've talked to people who've gone into, I've talked to people who've gone into abusive relationships. I've gone into situations where it turns out the person is has chronic illnesses or will, will do, feel like they will imminently um, have health issues. Um, but no one has any regrets, really. There, there are a few people who felt like they stayed outstayed their welcome or wanted to do it sooner. But everybody felt like it was a great experience and something that they're thankful for doing and they felt like they they learned more about themselves and I can really relate to that and it kind of listening to these people's stories and hearing things that I relate to made it all worthwhile for me because that's what I was looking for in the first place is is having kind of my experience and knowing that other people agree with it and kind of we might be in different countries and different places, but it's still the same process. But yeah, it's the no regrets is the thread that I found, and I quite liked that. I would class myself. Uh, this could come across really, really badly, but I'm going to I'm going to take the chance anyway. If I was to be honest with myself, I'm a bit of a lurker, and by that, especially on YouTube, 
you know, I'm very happy. And, you know, I think that comes across in, in my story where I am. I wouldn't be anywhere else. And, you know, and, and, and that's the way it is. And I know that not everybody's me. Um, but I do follow a lot of people on YouTube that have decided to leave the United Kingdom and go and live in Portugal, for example. And there's a, and I try I'm trying to work out if they are true adventurers. And I think if you do leave your home country and cease to become a traveler, as it were, like a tourist, the old word of being a tourist, and you settle down, there is a certain amount of adventure in that. It is for me, 20 plus years in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and, and this might come across like, you know, well, you would say that, but every day is like an adventure to me. Today, I found out about making goat's cheese at home. For me, we always went to the supermarket back in the day and you'd buy your goat cheese, you know? So every day is, is like that for me. Do you think that most of the people went with an adventurous spirit and then found it didn't work for them? Or was it a little bit of jingoism and, and off we go and, and, and let's see how it ends up? So I found that most of the people I spoke to still... And this goes against what you read or what you hear, but most people still felt like they were on holiday. And I feel like that sometimes too. So even though I'm very settled in Potsdam here, I've been here three and a half years, I still feel like every day is feels like a holiday to me because it's it's there are parts of this town, parts of the city that I've never seen before. There are people I've never met. Whereas I felt back home, I was in this routine. And I felt like most people I spoke to still believe that themselves, that they had this amazing opportunity and they loved being there, but they, they weren't done with life. They're not just moving to a new place, settling down and staying and kind of speaking English. Um, and yeah, I still feel that today. Like right now, I still feel like I'm on holiday, even though I have to work nine hours a day. And it's quite a nice feeling. Do you have that? I mean, we, we can't do what we feel now because we have COVID and, and the world has changed over this last, I don't know, 12 months or so. I really thought when COVID came that there'd be a point when I would be frustrated, upset, disappointed that I couldn't just jump on an aircraft to go back to see like my, my aging mother and one of my daughters, for example. But I have a different feeling now. I suffer with guilt because it doesn't bother me. I, sometimes I feel that I'm, I'm a lesser of a person for it. Did people that told their story feel that, that, you know, that they, they could go anywhere they wanted, but there would always be that quick route of a train, plane or automobile to get them home if it all went wrong? Yeah, definitely. Um, and in fact, I spoke to a lady in Norway who I met through Twitter and she came up with a really, I, I can't quote it word for word, but she said that actually living in another country, once you've lived in your home country, is always a compromise. It's always the idea that you have to blend what's great about back in the UK because there are lots of things I love about it. I mean, I'm not someone who was running away. I enjoyed living there, but I felt like I could enjoy life more if I had more experiences. She said it's a compromise. So it's taking what you love about where you live with what you love about where you're from and then working through the bits you don't like as much. But almost everybody said that they quite liked going back to the UK for a weekend or a week and then they were done with it and they were happy to go back again. I think one guy summed it up really perfectly where he said he gets to Heathrow and he goes to Marks and Spencers and he buys everything he can because he doesn't have Marks and Spencers in. It was a career. And I emphasize with that. I go back and I, and I go to Tesco's for something to do and I grab as much as I can and I kind of binge on UK stuff. And then after like three or four days of being with my parents and living back in my old bedroom from when I was a teenager. I'm like, I'm good, I can go back to Germany. I can kind of find a new adventure back over there again. But yeah, everybody liked to go back for 
a brief period of time, but that was too much for them. And then they, they headed back out again. Yeah, me was always, and maybe it will in the future, but we don't know anymore, do we? But it, for me, it was always Heathrow, the rail air link to Reading, and rather than jump on a bus or a, a cab to my daughter's, uh, I had to invest 40 minutes in having a Cornish pasty. I mean, we have a, a very similar thing here, the Burek. I call it the Balkan pasty, as it were. I mean, if anybody's, uh, I hope nobody's outside the room here, they'll come in and do something to me. But I had to do that. And I had to come back sweating that I wouldn't get done by customs and immigration for the 30 or 40 jars of Marmite and all the other stuff, you know, the, the, the ingredients to make a good in Indian curry and everything. But yeah, mm, yeah, I know. My cultural setting where I am, it, that is very much a compromise. It's a different way of life that they have in Southeast Europe. I think maybe we used to have it many years ago in the United Kingdom. Germany, having lived there, I mean, there's differences there as well. And I remember reading, when I started reading the book about your birthday and nobody making an issue of it because the, the thing is that you take cake. I mean, when people have birthdays here, you, you know, you, you take everything in and you do that. Were those, cult, were those sort of things coming out in the stories as well about people not knowing to take cake or what to do at the right time? of the year or for the right event? Yeah, all the time. Um, so in my own situation, my second day in my new country was my birthday and I went to work and <laughs> no one mentioned it. I spent all day wondering why, because the day before when I introduced myself, I'm like, hey, I'm Tom. By the way, it's my birthday tomorrow. And I spent the whole day on my own. No one said anything. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later that someone bought in a whole load of cakes and said, hey, it's my birthday. And everyone made a big deal. I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. And I'm still learning. So I've been here, like I say, three and a half years, and I'm still learning these different changes in culture. And then, of course, I work with lots of people from different nationalities, and they all have their own cultures, and it's kind of trying to blend it together. But it's very much the case in when I speak to people in Kuwait or Dubai, they're really learning how to live there again. And I found it really fascinating that speaking to people in North America, so I have a guy who was a Hollywood actor in the book, and I have another guy who works in the entertainment industry in LA. And you think, okay, well, they can speak English, they're going to be fine. But they're finding they're having to relearn daily things because actually the way they're doing it in America might be in the same language, but it's just interpreted in different ways. And that's also kind of fascinating. I could just write a whole book about different cultural aspects of these places. I felt like I learned a lot about different countries through speaking to people and everybody. And I know you said the same in, in your extract, that you're not done learning. I don't think I'm ever going to get to a stage in Germany, especially since it's, I'm living in what was East Germany, where I fully understand everything and I know the situation and I, I know exactly how the people are thinking and what they do and what their cultures are. We're still learning every day. It's kind of makes it more exciting, right? Is there still that Aussie and Wesley feeling between the population of, of Berlin? Because it is regarded, is it not, as one of the most tolerant, multiculti cities in the world now. I think it might well have taken over in such a positive way from Toronto, which I think held that banner for many, many, many years. But do the Germans still have this Aussie and Wesley feeling about themselves? Yeah, they do. So I live in an old village just outside of Potsdam. And this was like traditionally a agricultural area of East Germany. And people here aren't used to dealing with foreigners and they're not used to the idea that a British guy has come in and they've bought the apartment next to them. So we're kind of treated with a bit of suspicion. When you go into Berlin, Berlin's different. Berlin is this multicultural city where 
everybody feels like they're an outsider, but they all fit together quite nicely. In Germany, there is still, there's two things. Um, they talk about Mauer im Kopf. So the idea that the wall is still in people's minds, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because I didn't think about this before I moved here. I thought, well, the wall went down in 89. By the 90s, everybody was one big country again. But actually in East Germany, people still have the idea that the wall is in their head. It's still there. They haven't kind of come through that. And lots of people in the West will talk negatively about people in the East. They refer to East Germany as Dunkel Deutschland because they traditionally didn't have as much power to to um, to run the streetlights, so everything appeared darker. It's really interesting. I, I sometimes feel like I'm not particularly welcome in the East, but I think that's me looking for issues more than actually experiencing it. Yeah, we, we have a lady who lives near us in the apartment block who is convinced that there is still like the Stasi mm-hmm. is still operating here. She's still convinced that we have sort of um, surveillance and that people are looking out for us. And it's interesting. I never saw this happening. I, I thought I was moving to, you know, Germany, this this modern country. I'm moving near to Berlin. It's exciting. It's kind of vibrant. But actually the East is still seen as the East by some people and the way they act and the way they talk. So, Yeah. Yeah, for me, it, the younger people, they're, they're all over Westerners to a degree. You know, the country here, if truth be told, is emptying at an alarming rate. They don't like to tell that to the world. But, you know, the, the, they say there's a population of 3.5 million. The reality could be it's only 2.6 and, and people are leaving. But the older people, yeah, I'm still regarded with, oh, they're very polite. Uh, very respectful but you know you're a westerner and you know you in the west you in the west you in the west so i suppose yeah balkan people have mawa in kopf syndrome as well the older ones especially those that lived under tito and it's only now after 20 years that they opened up and said well we have a class system as well we had intellectuals we had workers and we had peasants and if you're an intellectual, you were obviously well-placed in the party. So you didn't have to worry about social support if things went bad or anything like that. It, it was all there. But talking about attitudes of Eastern, Easterners and Westerners. Yeah, your visit to Bosnia and Herzegovina, Sarajevo and Mostar based. What did you think of the everyday people that, that you interacted with? Were they more welcoming or as would be expected? It's very interesting to find out how other, you know, we're called Stranats, how other Stranats see it. Because I think sometimes now when I'm talking about how do other people see the population here? I've been here so long that I don't even think about it anymore. How did, how did you feel about it when you came? So to add some context, the reason why I came to, I went to Sarajevo is that I was reading National Geographic Traveller and I saw an article about how in Sarajevo you can hike up the mountain and see the old Winter Olympics venues. And I had a free weekend and I noticed a flight path. I thought, I'm going to go and do that. So I organized it. Okay, I stayed in an an Airbnb and the guy was really keen to pick me up from the airport. And I was like, I don't know this country. Okay, we're going to do it. So the first Bosnian I met in Bosnia, the first question he said to me is, why the F are you here? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And the answer answer was? I I tried to explain that... I was kind of keen to know more about the country. I wanted to come and see this place. I mean, his Airbnb was at the bottom of the mountain that I was going to hike up. And he just didn't get it. He was like, you could go anywhere. 
but you've come here. And I'm like, okay, but at the same time, really nice, really friendly, really keen to talk to me, really keen to impress that he could speak English and tell me about all the different football that he knows. And I didn't have one single negative experience in Bosnia. I saw some areas that could do with some more funding or maybe some better um, hygiene in places in Sarajevo where people seem quite keen to dump their rubbish the other side of their fence. But in terms of people, not one single problem. Really welcoming, really friendly. I liked that I could walk around the city and not be hassled by people. <laughs> You don't always get that in other places, especially um, maybe in North Africa and places in South America I've been. In Bosnia, people come across really humble, but they didn't understand why I was there, don't understand why I spent time and money to visit their country. And I get that, right? I mean, a lot of these people have been through far more um, in their lifetimes and they've seen their country torn apart far more than I've seen anywhere torn apart. So the idea that it's a holiday destination probably does seem weird to them because they spent much of their life not enjoying it as much. But yeah, I only had positive experiences. I would love to go back. But obviously with travel restrictions, it's not been an option, but it's definitely somewhere that I'd like to see more of. What did you think of the cuisine? For Westerners who are now used to being vegans or vegetarians or, you know, and, and being exposed to having everything you want, how did you how did you find the food here? So I did have Boric. Um, <laughs> in fact, I had, um, uh, sorry, I can't remember the name of the Bosnian currency, but I had currency left. And at the airport, that was the only thing I could buy. <laughs> um, but in terms of, I mean, obviously being in Sarajevo, so Sarajevo should be seen as like the East meets the West and there's a place on the floor where there is kind of the divide between the two. Eating in the West was very like international, right? In the East, I found that, yeah, it was a lot of meat. The idea that you could just have meat, bread and some onion to me was quite interesting. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of onions, so I ate the meat and the bread. But yeah, again, I thought it was quite nice. I thought it was quite enjoyable i'm a meat eater so it helped if i was a vegan maybe i would have struggled a bit in sarajevo but yeah just the onions i did kind of leave those on my plate and get some funny looks from people but yeah you're not the only one i the family that i'm with just doesn't get the fact that i can't eat tons of onions with my kebab you know they say that you know we in the west and this is what i wanted to try and see if you know from your experiences of travel as well how you know they say to me well you have all these weird things like your you have veganism um, and I'm saying, yeah, but it's, I'm not. Uh, and I try to explain it by saying, well, it's just a choice. The stories that you got told, were any of those stories involved about people not being able to grasp the reality? One of the things I noticed is um, if you speak to people in countries like Kuwait or speak to people in countries like Nigeria, is that even though they were living what they deemed as like an expat life, they weren't interacting with the locals as much. Whereas countries such as yeah, um, let's say Austria, Switzerland, Italy, you find that people are interacting far more and coming across these experiences. But in some of the ones where the culture is quite different, it was a separate life they were living. So I kind of had hoped to learn a bit more about places like Saudi Arabia or Kuwait, but effectively they were living in compounds where there were other international people. So they weren't seeing them, the really kind of the huge differences in culture or attitudes. So you, I guess you're living a far more authentic experience in Bosnia than some people are in other countries. 
I like to think I am in Germany, so I don't actually know any other British people here. I still follow British news and British football, but I don't, I wouldn't say it was particularly noticeable that I was from another country. Whereas in some of the people I spoke to, it's, yeah, they're living in compounds and not seeing the rest of the country as much. Yeah, I, I think immersion is important. Um, from some of the social posts um, that I've seen from you, you're, you're doing the immersion job quite well. In fact, you're quite a fan of the local football team. Yeah, sure. So football has been a big part of my life and I, I'm struggling with it in coronavirus times because I've never really watched football on TV. I've been since a young age at football, going to football games, playing football. And now I have to watch it on like this kind of stale TV environment where there's no fans and it's overanalyzed to death. Whereas, yeah, German football's great. I don't like the fact that you can smoke at the football stadiums because I'm not a smoker and I it kind of ruins the enjoyment a bit. But I'm trying to, while I live here, see as much of the country through traveling and watching football games as I can. And that's one of my major hobbies and something I'm really missing. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to several major international tournaments like the Russia World Cup. And I think that's a great way to travel and see the world because football might be played on a rectangular pitch and the rules of the game might be the same. But every single stadium, every single team, every single fan interprets it in a different way or has a different feeling behind it. And in Germany, football is very tribal. So in England, I like the fact that I can just go to my games at Watford and I can watch the team. And if I sing a song, I sing a song. If I don't, no one cares. In Germany, there's quite a flag-waving culture and this idea that you're in a group and this is one collective sort of group of people all there for the, the gang mentality. And that's weird for me. So often you'll find if I go to a football game, I will sit in the empty section. If there's an empty section, I will move and sit there because I don't want to have to join in this collective mentality, partly because I don't understand what they're singing. <laughs> um, while I can speak German, picking up the lyrics of songs can be difficult. And I just find people have an issue with it. If you're there, but you're not joining in, you're going to get questions. People are going to ask you stuff. But yeah, I can't wait for football to come back, really. My local team here are at the fourth division, but you still get two and a half thousand people that go and it's still a good standard of football. My German team are in Hamburg, Hartersfell, and you get 60,000 people there. So it's kind of different levels. But yeah, here there's a the flag waving mentality is bizarre to me, but I accept it because they seem to enjoy it. It's the same with my ice hockey. I'm an ice hockey fan and player and our team in Berlin are one of the biggest supported in Europe. We get like 15,000 home games and it's all about waving flags and singing the songs and being part of this big collective group. And I'm very much an outsider in that. I'm hoping that one day you'll come and visit us here. And when you do, I've made a note already. When you do, the first thing we'll do is we'll go to Banja Luka, which is the nearest city to us, and we'll do we'll we'll do a pub and graffiti tour. Uh, and 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 the reason we're going to do a pub and graffiti tour is before going to the football is that you'll see that across the whole city, and I think it goes for most of the cities in Bosnia-Herzegovina, the city decorates itself with graffiti. And it's not obscene graffiti, but from, from the team, the home team. And I, and I have to say that there is a bit of a German mentality uh, here. Borats is the team from Banja Luka. They are the fighters, the warriors. When there's a home game, you can walk through the city and you'll, you have nothing to do with it, but you will hear them singing and chanting uh, and when they get into this clapping sort of thing that they do, it resonates, reverberates, sorry. I've already noted that when Tom comes to Banyu, we must um, do sport. You went to Sarajevo and, and then you went to Mostar. Now, Mostar is completely different from Sarajevo from my perspective, a lot smaller. How did you find that compared to the big city of Sarajevo? It felt like a tourist exhibit, I'll be honest. Um, so everything around Mostar was based around the bridge and 
everybody was there to hopefully see someone jump off it. I, I loved it as a place and I felt it was nice to walk down the, the small little streets and to, to see the small shops. Everything seemed to be based around the one bridge and everybody was stood waiting for someone to jump off and they never did. But of course, it's one of the most, probably the one of the most Instagram spots in East in Europe or in the Balkans but I felt like I was just among other tourists I didn't really get a sense of like the local and I felt like I could buy a Coca-Cola if I wanted on the street but I could buy that anywhere else in the world so I didn't really get a sense of like what Bosnia was from Mostar whereas I felt some of the side streets in Sarajevo were a bit more um, authentic a bit more realistic I stayed in Sarajevo and I took a, a very touristy day trip by a company called Funky Tours Uh, yeah yeah they're great um and the the trip was awesome and they did tell the backstory and they explained everything had i not been with them and there was no one telling me in my ear as i walked around i would have just seen a bridge and seen lots of tourists and it doesn't didn't take away from the experience because i still enjoyed it but it i felt more like i had the run of sarajevo myself walking around seeing stuff on my own than the small little bridge between the two parts with covid how is it for you as um an expat now the brit in potsdam how does that affect you because that puts added restrictions that it certainly does on me we both live away from where we were born and where we grew up we are all we're both coping with different i won't say pressures but different ways about how we live our lives with with our new community our new culture etc and now covid has come along how how difficult has it been if i can ask that question tom it, it is difficult so so a couple of things here. So in the the first lockdown, as it were, the first travel restrictions, my nan died. And okay, she was of an age, what people say, it still doesn't make it any easier. But I had to watch the funeral on a live stream. And that's difficult enough, especially since I'd always my whole life wanted to speak at my nan's funeral because I felt like I could do a great job at that. I got to do that, but over a live stream and I had to pre-record it. So I sat and watched on the internet, my family sitting in a service and then seeing myself speak on a screen. And then what happened is the service cut and I was alone with me and my wife for the rest of the day. And no one talked to us because they were all there as a family and they were all grieving together. So that was difficult. And I think sometimes my, my colleagues forget here that as Germans, they can see their friends and their family and they can go to the things that are kind of familiar to them all of the time. So when they complain that they can't go on holiday and then I say, yeah, I can't travel either, they forget that my travel isn't a holiday. It's to go back to see the people I've known my whole life. So that can be really difficult. And I, I struggle with it now because Germany's doing a really bad job with the vaccination. It's It's ranking very low in terms of percentages. And I look back and... Britain is doing far better than that and it's difficult because I'm now I feel like I'm stuck here sometimes I'm not living a bad life I just um you know it would be really nice to go back and see people my little brother for example who I've obviously known his whole life has just had his first child realistically when can I see that child I've no idea so yeah I mean I'm coping with it okay it's just I really wish I could go back and see them I really wish I wasn't trying to follow as many of the rules here as I can and kind of just stick into kind of a, a narrow life. But I get it. I've still got a job. I've still got my hobbies. I still have my apartment. So it could be far worse, but it's all relative, right? It's relative to us. Yeah, um, yeah. I have a son in Singapore, just had uh, another grandchild. Photographs don't cut it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and we had a, like a WhatsApp video call and I can see my little niece there, but you can't touch no. it. No, <laughs> you you, you, there, there's there. all that. I, I never really got what hugging was until COVID. Yeah, do you, do, do you know what I mean? As well, is 
very much a, a country under lockdown, right? My One of my best friends lives in Singapore, and it's been a year now of him not being able to leave the small island. And it's difficult for them too, because he, he moved there with the idea that he will go for work, but he gets to see a lot more of Asia through living locally. And now he's spent a whole year within the same 26 mile radius or whatever the the island is so it might feel like paradise for some people but then when you're stuck there for a whole year without being able to leave it and it was interesting because from from the book someone was at the start of covid planning to live and work in the san blas islands mm -hmm. um, out near panama and she made a really good quote where she said you know what it might feel like paradise to you but when you feel like you're going to be stuck there forever and you're on lockdown paradise quickly becomes hell and while my situation isn't hell it's just a shame and it's the same for my friend in Singapore. So yeah, again, this is another good reason to speak to someone like you is because the people back home don't understand this as much. While we're all living under restrictions, there's an added restriction there where your friends and family and your foundation, right? I'm all, I always will be English, as in my foundation will always be in England. And right now I'm almost legally banned from going there, which is quite a weird scenario. Yeah, we, we just got into COVID and I broke my ankle. Um, and then I went into the, to the hospital system. There's covid my local language is well yeah restaurant a very good restaurant level but come on you know when you go to see a doctor or a surgeon or whatever the language changes significantly and i thought this is going to be cool because tam will be with me and, and there'll be no problems and there's this line tom on the floor and uh, uh, only those that have been covid tested in other words medical workers are over that and i just went and I just thought, this is going to take the British stiff upper lip to a whole new level now, especially when at least, as far as I was aware, the last time I was in a British hospital, you had pyjamas, right? And there you are, starkers with just a blanket over you. Uh, and, uh, and as you're getting ready for, for an operation, it's mixed as well. A whole new level of experience. But yeah, I mean... I kept saying to myself a phrase from the military, which not many, unless you've been in the military and maybe can't understand, it seems quite childish. But I kept saying, just keep your sense of humour. I think that's what British people do quite well, though. Yeah, we While do. We, we do. We can be quite self-deprecating. So it's something that I struggle with here is that I'm very self-deprecating, but I, I know that it's almost like an act. I'm quite confident in myself and I know when I'm doing OK and I know situations where I'm struggling a little bit, but I need to put on a bit of a brave face is I will talk down about myself. And then I find that a German person will then take me literally and try to pick me up again, or they agree with you. And you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. But I find that, yeah, to keep your sense of humour, we, as British people, it was great to speak to so many people because I had all of these, like, witty responses and sarcasm and sort of dour responses to what should have been exciting situations. Um, yeah. And it's one of the stereotypes about Germans, right, that they don't have a sense of humour. They do have a sense of humour, obviously, but it's different. And sarcasm isn't something that they've grown into. I don't believe they will. Um, so I can sometimes be seen as like someone with very low confidence here, but it's not the case. It's just that that's the portrayal that we give ourselves is that, oh, I'm rubbish at this. Um, I've tried to explain it to people recently that um, I say I'm rubbish at something when I don't think I've done a brilliant job. I've done an okay job, but I say I'm rubbish in case they catch me out and they say, oh, you could have done that better. I'll be like, I know, I told you. Um, and I'm always having to explain that even three years of working with the same people, I'm having to say, that's just a joke. I, I, that's just what English people do. We just say it like that. Um, obviously not all of us are the same, but I found that lots of the British people on the calls I spoke to 
it was great to have their sense of humour around me again. You know, when you say talking, uh, referring back as we have been to the the people that you uh, spoke to, including me, um, has it stimulated a follow-on book? Yeah, I think so. Um, with different people, right? So now I've got some material behind me. I think people will buy into the idea far more because. I'm not this weird guy on the internet just reaching out saying, hey, I have this idea and I want to do it like this. I can quite literally go, it, it looks and reads like this. I've already in my head, I would just call it Goodbye Britain, still talking to the Brits who packed their bags and find more British people. There's also potential to do something like Hello Britain, where I reverse it and talk to the, the foreign people who moved to Britain. But right now I'm still trying to get as many people as possible to read it. I'm an unknown, right? No one knows who I am. I don't have any weight behind me. And trying to find people without begging them is the next challenge, I think. Tom, you have, as long as you want, to now self-publicise yourself. Where can we get the book? Tell us all about the book as far as sales are concerned, about how to get it is concerned, because I think it's a... Uh, what did they used to say? There used to be um, a commercial on radio many years ago about some newspaper, and they said it's a right riveting read. And, and, and without being too Boris Johnson about it, it is a right riveting read. Once you start reading the book, it's... You can't put it down. How do we get hold of a copy, our own copy of Goodbye Britain? So if you go to goodbyebritain.co.uk, you will find links to some of the more established websites. We know their names. Um, you can also find me on social media at, at Hey Tom Beck. And the idea of the book really is, OK, it's based on British people because I wanted to have the common link with them all. I wanted everybody to have the same starting point, the same country. And while they are British opinions and British sense of humours and, and British ways of speaking, they're relatable stories. They're stories that everybody who has either considered living outside of their own country, lives outside of their own country, knows someone who's living outside of their own country. They're talking about their emotions and their experiences and their feelings, and they're doing it in about five to 10 minutes per person. And I really loved that about the book and the idea is that I could read a chapter of my own book in between train stops and I don't have to come back. Some of the books I have on my shelf here, I'm going to have to go back and remember where I was and who this person was and what part of the story. Goodbye Britain is effectively almost like magazine articles, which you can jump into. You can read all about David and Bosnia, and then you don't need to remember David and Bosnia when you get to Helen in Norway or where you get to Paul in Argentina. And you don't need to know their backstory because you just need to hear their words and listen to their experiences. I'm really proud of the book, which is not something I'm that, willing to say out loud that often that I'm proud of something I think I've done as good a job as I could really while there are approaches that I would have done differently and I might have explained to people the concept in a better way or might have asked them to have less of an input in the final piece uh, yeah I think it stands up really well I should say while I'm on the call that I took great inspiration from a book I actually have it here on my shelf and it's called Londoners by Craig Taylor and the subtitle is uh, The Days and Nights of London Now, as told by those who love it, hate it, live it, left it and long for it. His concept was great. He went to London and he interviewed as many different people in London as he could. And then he presented it back as first person narratives. But he then goes on and he has a few more editorial parts of it. And I, I took the inspiration from that. And the idea is effectively I spoke to people around the world who all started in Britain. And I asked them, why are you there? What are you doing? How do you feel about that? 
I went with a list of questions and ended up just having conversations about the questions because that was far more captivating, I think. You can read it also on Kindle Unlimited. So if you have a subscription, it's kind of free, as it were, to download and to start reading pages. I care more about reaching an audience than I do about making money. So if anyone's listening to this and they can't afford a copy or they would like to read a preview, just hit me up on social media. So at hey tom beck or hey tom beck at gmail.com and i'm happy to share this i i don't i have a career and i i have a, a very nice work contract i don't need to make money from a book i just want people to see it to see that i've done a good job to give me feedback yeah thank you so much for giving me a platform and again thank you for trusting me with your own story see that's the great thing about following people on social media is that i feel like i know part of your life having never met you so when i get there it's not going to be like meeting a stranger because I kind of have already spoken to you for long enough. I've seen, I've seen when you when you broke your ankle and you're in hospital, kind of kind of personal stuff that you don't see from everybody. Um, and I'm like that on the internet. I, I don't mind what I share. I, I'm not hiding anything. I'm not making a pretense about who I am. Um, so yeah. If anyone else would like to follow me and see what I'm up to, then feel free. It's it's fine for me. Well, I'll put all the links, Tom, in the description below where, where people will be listening to this podcast. Um, and I've just got a message that's cracked up on my screen saying I've made another cheese. So bang went the bang went the diet and the calorific value that I had planned for today. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, have a great weekend and thank you again. Tom, thank you very much indeed. Tom Beck talking to me late last week about his book, Goodbye Britain. Now, to get a copy of the book, you can either go to goodbyebritain.co.uk or click on the links in the show notes. Tamara and I hope you like and find our podcast interesting. And if so, it would be so, so cool if you could follow us and leave a review on your podcatcher of choice. It really would mean a lot. And if there's anything you would like us to podcast about concerning Bosnia and Herzegovina, then simply drop us a message. Our contact info and related links are in the show notes. Well, until the next episode from here in our small studio near Laktashi in northern Bosnia and Herzegovina, please stay safe. Escape from Balkan, what's the Balkan, what's the Balkan?